Hi, Dr. Barbie. I'll bring you on in just a second. You're the only one here so far. So I just wanted to um well, I guess I don't need to make an announcement if you're the only one here. Um, just to remind people that they need to raise their hand to get coaching. Okay, here we go. Hi. Hey, how are you? I am not terrible. How are you? <laughs> I love it. You know, when I saw Dr. Barbie, I was like, I wonder if be like the spice, the a spice du jour. Now, now my names are getting so obvious. Yeah, no, it's fine. I love um, it. Um, you're the only one here right now. So like, let's go nuts. What's happening? Okay. Awesome. Um, so not terrible. We'll take that. Um, yeah. You had asked me the last time I'm on, why do I keep working? Yeah. Um, I've hit my case minimums. Um, everything's like a shit show in clinic. It's like you said, the organ failure shutdown thing. Yeah. Um, and when I had my interview last week, one of the doctors interrupts me during dinner and he's like, why are you still working? So yeah. I was thinking about that today um because again just like another shit show clinic even though I had help uh, one of the other doctors PAs was helping me but like every single patient showed up an hour late like every single one um and I said that on Wednesdays I would stop leaving clinic after 6 p.m because I, I operate the next day and mm -hmm. instead I will just leave as soon as clinic's done and do my notes another time um the senior partner never does his notes. So there's all this like missing money, but I always do my notes and my op notes the same day. Yeah. Um, but then I don't get paid for it. Um, so then that thought came through today of why do I still work or why am I still working? Like beyond what I need to do, right? Like seeing post-ops yeah. and seeing my call patients. Um, and then the senior partner sent me a very rude text message last week, which he's never done. He's like very non-confrontational. But he asked me why I didn't respond to his text message. Why it took me over an hour to respond to his text message? Because I guess um, another doctor was trying to refer a patient. Um, but I was in clinic, which was busy. Mm -hmm. Nobody in this practice answers emails, text messages, anything ever, <laughs> let alone in an hour. But also what the patient had was an emergency. He needed to go to the ER. And if you were to see me in clinic, I don't have enough OR time to like get him to the OR quick enough. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't have said yes to it anyway, but I kind of felt with that text message of why didn't you answer me in an hour? This patient went away. I thought I take so much call and I do so much work to keep the patients we have from leaving. Like, how dare you text me this? Um, mm -hmm. So then I'm just trying to unpack, I guess, this need I have to keep working. I don't know if it's because as like physicians, you tend to be people pleasers or overachievers or what it is. Well, that's a great question. And, and I don't know, and maybe it's different for different people, but quickly, could we just review what the text message actually said was like the first text yes. said what? Um, he said, um, actually, I have the text message. Um, what did he say? 
Well, I guess maybe like the exact details don't matter, but, um, he said, can you, oh, um, so-and-so is trying to send, oh, a physician colleague is trying to send a patient that has this condition. Can you take care of it? Um, and that came at like 4.30, um, which was sort of like the tail end of a ridiculous clinic last week where I was like two hours behind because of nonsense. So I think I responded to him at 5.45 and said, where's the patient now? The patient needs to go to the ED. Um, and he said, uh, you know, you didn't hear back. He didn't hear back from me. So he sent the patient elsewhere. And I was like, okay, end of story. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I come, I finished my first case to a text message that said, why did it take you over an hour to respond to my text yesterday? Um, that doctor sent you such and such patient and now he had to send that patient out to another doctor okay so yeah and i think what i get from you is that there's like a tone coming through on the text right yes and he never ever texts me like that he doesn't talk to people like that like he's very very non-confrontational and passive aggressive yeah. Um, hold on just a second, Dr. Barbie. Um, Sunflower, if you're just joining us, I just want to remind you that if there's something that you want coaching on, please raise your hand and then I'll make sure we get to everybody. So far, it's just you and Dr. Barbie. So we're just rolling with this um, installment of, of uh, we have to come up with a name for it. Um, the The practice meltdown or something like that. Um, the practice organ failure, honestly, yeah. that was just like such a good analogy. And I tried to remind myself all week. I was like, organ failure. Yeah. So this is fascinating. So this is a guy who ordinarily, like you said, is kind of has a passive aggressive vibe. And this is, he's the senior partner, correct? So it's like his group. Yes. Yes. Right. And imagine yeah. what it would be like when you're on a sinking ship and you got to bail water out of the ship and it's like panic mode because y'all are about to die. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suspect he's engaging in that manner now, right? Like he's freaking the fuck out is what my guess is. Um, and how could he not be? Hang on. I'm going to shut my door. Yeah. I have a new office in my house and um, it's close to where the dogs are barking. Hang on. Okay. The petting zoo? Yes. There's a bunny <laughs> rabbit. There's a bunny rabbit in there's the coach bunny now in the room. <laughs> I tell you guys. Okay. So I don't know if that's going to help at all, but hopefully it'll dampen their barking. Um, I mean, does any of this even matter, right? You're not staying here. I know. I mean, again, I'm not getting complacent until I get the contract, but I did get an email with, like, good feedback this morning from the C-suite of the next group. But So I'm just trying to hang on and not be an asshole until I have the contract, but I also don't want to assume anything until I have it. I gotcha. Do you think maybe that's why you're continuing to work? Um, I mean, this is like a whole separate thing that I was going to deal with when it comes to it, but 
if the board gives me a hard time because yeah. technically the group is still open, mm-hmm. I don't know what I haven't decided what I would do yet because I'm almost at the end of collections, you know? So I'm like, right. I've done all this hard work. It's such a pain in the ass to collect. Um, do I somehow try to stick it out for a year? But I don't know. Cause like my mental health deteriorates on a daily basis at this place. Um, so I would have to really, really decide what to do if the board were to give me a hard time. Right. Um, so maybe that's why I keep going. I don't know. I think that the answer to this question is not a mystery. I think it's number one, you're not a stupid person. And I think that in a perfect world, if you didn't have boards kind of lingering out there and, um, and say you, you did have another job ready and Mm -hmm. waiting and you had a contract, you probably would have no issues stopping seeing patients. But right now there are, there are these loose ends and I suspect because you're not dumb and you are a smart and calculating surgeon that you're trying not to burn any bridges. Yeah. That would be my number one guess. So I don't think it's this like deep, you know, mystery or some sort of like deep, um, it's, it's probably that simple. Right. Like you just got to keep showing up until some of some of these other loose ends are tied up, because if if you get a contract with the other group, can you take your patients and do all your follow up with them? That's what I'm going to tell the board. Um, And so I'm hoping that they will accept that as an answer. Um, But I don't know if the board's going to get really technical, because even though the group has filed for bankruptcy, it's technically still open. Yeah. Um, But yes, the plan is to take all my patients and run up. So I think that's this, I think that's the simple answer. It's that you're just trying not to fuck things up and burn a bridge. You know, it's so easy for somebody in my position to be like, why are you not just, why are you still showing up? You know, you're not getting paid. You're under earning. And that's all like, duh, of course, but you have these two things that are out there. And I, I suspect that it's just that simple. That it's like, yep, you gotta, you gotta kind of keep doing CPR until somebody decides if you're going to be an organ donor or not. (laughs) No. Um, yeah, I mean that, that might be it. Um, because you know, the board does ask all your former partners about you. Yeah. And so I still, even though I really want to text him back, like go F yourself. Yeah. Um, I was very diplomatic because, um, you know, he's going to get a survey either, you know, if I stay or if I go. Of course. Um, and like, you can tell the board, Hey, I had a problem with the partner, but like, who wants to actually do that? Well, that's, you're bringing up a really excellent point here. It, I think for the most part, showing up as an asshole is not effective. Right. Now there are times when anger is very effective and there are times when we just kind of have to lose it a little bit. And the funny thing is, is that when you're so measured and you're not an asshole, like 95% of the time, then the times that you do lose it, people take notice and it's, it's important and it's very impactful. So it's like strategic assholery and this is not the time to do it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And I think I was just, cause when you texted me the last week, like the Saturday before I came in to do a case that like 
no other surgeon in town would have to come in to do, but I didn't have like, I wasn't able to get the patient to the OR in time as an outpatient. Mm-hmm. So I came in on Saturday to do a case. Um, a few days before I had operated till 4am because uh, my case wasn't able to start until like midnight because of how many add-ons there were. Yeah. So I was like, I have worked to do these cases like nights and weekends. I've gone to him about losing patients because I don't get surgery center time or like, the clinic's such a nightmare. Patients are literally walking out. And then obviously he allowed like two doctors to quit. So I'm like, you are getting at me for one case, which again, if I had accepted the case because of the timing, it would have been malpractice. So I wasn't going to accept it anyway. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you are mad about this one case when I've gone to you for two years about patients who are losing and you don't care. Is that what you said? No. Um, oh. obviously I can't like say that, say that, but, um, when he brought this up to me, you know, excited to talk to him in person about it. Um, cause they go to the patient never show up and I said, no, and I'm not accepting that patient anyway, because I can't get them taken care of in time. That's not practice. Mm-hmm. Um, also I have a suspicion that other physician is dumping his like poorly insured patients on us. Um, because I'm like, he can handle this stuff. He just doesn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I've talked to him about, losing patients at our second office, which they just shut down, um, and how he hasn't been responsive to that. But anytime, the thing is, if you come to him with any sort of confrontation, mm-hmm. he's really slick and slimy. He's been in the game for a long time. He'll just like talk in circles or make excuses or whatever. So it's almost pointless. Okay. So if that's the case, then it's even more important not to engage because it's not going to go well. Right. It's Correct. like you like, nail a custard pie to the wall. It just won't work. <laughs> yes. Um, and then after I talked to him, whenever it was Monday, mm-hmm. again, for the seventh time in like two months, I was like, why do I even bother talking to him? It's so useless. Yeah. Um, so I tried to do Kelly's thing of like, man says words with a text message, um, which I think didn't work because I was so enraged. But, you know, then I thought, well, why do I keep working if this is going to be the response to everything? Like, I don't feel that I should kill myself taking on partner concerns when I'm not a partner. Exactly. There's your, you, you solved your own um, dilemma. <laughs> well, I think the problem oh. is because he's not paying me. He's forcing me to sacrifice like a partner, but I don't have any control like a partner. So it's kind of like, what's the point? That's exactly right. And if you're not a partner, then as long as you're doing what's in the, um, the, what's outlined in your contract, which you clearly are, then other than him having an opinion about something, that's all you're really obligated to do. Yeah. They clearly aren't upholding their end of the bargain. Right. That's what I find so funny about this. Like I've talked to him so many times about the money he owes me, like he wants to hire another PA. And I said, okay, so you have money to hire a PA. You have money to give me one of my missing paychecks. And then it's like, well, can you get, take care of this patient? No, because I'm not going to get paid for it. Like, no. Wouldn't it be funny to respond to him something like, well, I'll answer your text message when I get a paycheck. <laughs> oh my God, that would be so good. I will tell you, I was so tempted to do that. And then people in my life were like, do not do that. Just be so diplomatic. Yeah. 
Um, what I will do is I will probably start responding to that once I have that contract in my hand yeah. and yeah. I have an escape plan. But until then, I have to behave, at least on the surface. But the funny thing is, is that something along those lines might not be a terribly bad idea because that does also establish a record of you not getting paid, a written communication record. Another one in addition to my weekly emails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah. saying, it's like, yeah. What what can he say? Like, it is a fact that you're not getting paid, which is a great, it's an egregious right. breach of his contract with you. Yeah. And so for it's, it's absurd for you to have to respond like you're some kind of a fucking secretary within right. whatever unknown amount of time to, um, to his text messages, which by the way, is a horrible way to communicate. If there's something that's clearly that important, just come talk to somebody. That's why I was like, you know, he, he knows he can call me if he doesn't reach me. So I'm like, this whole thing is so stupid. (laughs) It's absurd. And anytime there's absurdity, we want to look at that, right? We want to examine what is really going on here. And what's really going on here is there is a power differential between him and you because he's a senior partner and you're not a partner. There's, there is also a differential with the man versus the woman. There's another differential with his practice going to hell in a handbasket, and he probably has some thoughts and feelings about that. So that's contributing to how he is showing up. And at the end of the day, what you have control over is how you show up and like what you bring to it. And this guy can just be like a bad business person and, um, you know, whatever else he is doing all day long. But at the end of the day, for you to protect yourself and to eventually move on to some other more stable practice, I think as long as you keep showing up steady and keep um, keep the paper trail, like what else? what else can they do? Um, I guess deep down, um, even though I don't think he could afford to do this deep down, cause you know, he can do whatever he wants. I'm afraid that like, if I am an a-hole or I overset my boundaries, that he'll fire me, even though that's so stupid because I'm the only one left. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I mean, that's irrational, but he's also irrational. Like that's why the practice is going up in flames. Um, right, right. so I think maybe that's why. Like I'm supposed to, I'm taking vacation the last week of August Mm -hmm. and I haven't told the staff to actually move my patients yet because I'm nervous. They're going to look at it and say, oh, you already took time off in May with your mom. Like you can't have more time off, even though I work my ass off, I can take time off and I bring in enough income. I can take time off. And I'm like, that's so ridiculous. They're already, if there's weeks that they're not paying you and with the bankruptcy, I may never get paid then like, I should just take those weeks off. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, but then I'm just worried, like, you know, they'll come back and say something, which again, feels somewhat irrational when people like know the situation, but, um, but I think to me, he's irrational and I don't That's... actually have my escape plan yet. I gotcha. But I mean, if that happened, yeah. this is a legal problem. 
if that happened, yeah. you're not on the wrong side of this legal problem, as far as I can tell. Not that I'm like yeah. some kind of legal mind, but it, from everything that you've just described and shared with us, it doesn't sound like you're on the wrong side of this legal problem, which is the probably no. another reason why you continue to show up every day. Yeah. Because you know you don't want to be on the wrong side of this legal problem. And at the end of the Definitely. day, if he fired you, if he had a problem with any of it, he's the one who's in breach of contract, not you. You know right. you're PTO, even though he doesn't have that in front of him in a contract, which we've covered in a previous session. Yep. He hasn't been giving you a paycheck. So right. this isn't like a volunteer organization. Yeah. So I residency. <laughs> exactly. But I think that kind of reinforces what I was saying a minute ago as to like, we started this whole conversation with why do I keep working? And I think yeah. that's why is because you are, you're being impeccable and you can never go mm-hmm. wrong when you show up in an impeccable way. Yes. I think you did use that word with me when we first started talking about this whole situation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. If you just show up impeccably, you cannot be dragged down with him. Okay. Yeah. I think that might, might hit the nail in the head. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I asked the next, the next group to hurry up because they have a process and I'm like, I can't wait for your process. Hurry up. So they'll hurry up and then I don't have to be impeccable. <laughs> so chances are you'll still be impeccable. I suspect. I know. I mean, it's like, uh, whatever, I guess it's just who I am. <laughs> yeah. That's a good thing to be. Yeah. Okay. Very okay, good. Well, thanks. You're welcome. Okay. Lower hand. Who is next? We have a couple more people that joined us. And when we got started, it was just Dr. Barbie and me. And so um, I wanted to tell you guys that if you just raise your hand or if you go into the chat, then I can call on you for coaching. This just makes me so happy that I'm now working per diem and I just get paid what I get paid no matter what. Um, it looks like my chat's not working, so I'm sorry about that, you guys. Q&A might be working. Do we have any other coaching to do today? Coaching. We have scalpel wielder and sunflower. So if nobody um, raises their hand, then I will, you know, of course, become verbose. I just did my second stint up north in this cute little town called Grass Valley. I call it Virgin River for fun. It's in the Sierra Nevada foothills and it's super beautiful. I have an apartment above a garage at this family's house. It's a young family. And this is like a dream. It's a dream I never knew I had. And in fact, my life is so good right now. I have amnesia about how bad it was before. That's literally what happens when you work and you're just like chugging through this tunnel of shit, kind of like when the Shawshank Redemption, when uh, Andy Dufresne is like 
low crawling through the tunnel of shit and he finally gets out on the other side and gets cleaned up with the rain. Oh my God. That's what it's like. And then you have amnesia about the prison you were just in. Um, because I go there and I work like a dog. I work, I don't know, like 12 to 14 to 15 hour days, most days, seven days in a row. But because it's, it's set up like this and it's been going like this for years, the hospitalists and the ER really do not bother you in the middle of the night unless it's a real serious issue. So I went all seven days with no calls between 10 PM and 5 AM. And if you can get sleep, like you can do anything. I mean, we are freaking warriors. We can do anything if we get some good sleep. Um, so I did 11 cases. I think I saw maybe 50 or 60 patients in our fracture follow-up clinic. And then in the evenings I had my time to myself with me, myself and I, in my cute little treehouse apartment on Saturday, it wasn't really busy at all. I had one consult all day long. So I binge watched Jewish matchmaker on, um, or Jewish matchmaking on Netflix, which is, I think, great. But um, then on Sunday, I was super busy and operated all day long. But then I came home, and it's like a day to bounce back and kind of get in the groove of being home. But what I have found that's so fascinating is, is now I'm not exhausted. So before, I was just exhausted all the time, no matter what. Exhausted all through the day, exhausted at night. I guess it's the only thing I'm not amnesia amnestic to is just the pure exhaustion through the weekend. I'd be exhausted. It's just never caught up. So now I'm not exhausted. And today I like swapped out this office for my old office. And now my daughter's bedroom is in the old office and just freaking slayed all day long. And I cannot tell you how awesome it is to be able to have your own time. Um, just do what you want to do. No matter what it is, if it's read a book, watch Netflix, go running, cook for your family, um, work, do surgery, decorate your house, whatever it is. It's amazing to just do what you want and only what you want and don't do what you don't want. It's the key. Those are the two steps that get it all done. So um, that's what I want to help you guys do is figure out how in your own lives to have the skills to just do what you want and only what you want and don't do what you don't want. And when you do that, when you start to kind of live your life that way, everybody else around you kind of falls into line. So daughter is doing better. She's taking care of herself and becoming more independent. Husband is doing better and becoming more independent. And it's like a magic, it's like a magic equation. So anyway, I hope this is making sense. Is that enough words? Does anybody now want coaching? We have scalpel wielder and sunflower on. So if you have anything you want coaching on, that would be great. If you don't, we can chit chat. We, we don't have to talk about coaching. We can talk about anything. We can just bring folks on for a round table um, or we can end early. It's up to you. Scalpel wielder. Here we go. Thank you so much for raising your hand. Awesome. Thanks. So I'm not sure I need like, um, 
true coaching or a model on this. So I was wondering more like how to a- approach a situation. Yeah. Um, so my hospital has understandably decided that they wanted to get rid of um, a certain kind of procedure done in IR that I don't do mm-hmm. because we don't have the support that we need for it. They were doing stroke interventions with yeah. just one stroke neurologist. And this is out of my territory. So I was like, okay, if you want to stop that and shut that down, that's fine by me. You don't have the support you need for it. Cool. Mm-hmm. No problem. I don't want to do those. So no worries. But there is one procedure that the interventionalist is quite good at that is above the head. And now they're not letting him do it. It's it's a middle meningeal artery embolization for patients with chronic subdurals. And mm-hmm. um, it's a very good procedure. He's done this on some of my patients. They've done excellent. He's been like very helpful with it. And then our hospital decided that when they like made the language for how they would shut down this stroke program, just basically excluded all procedures above the neck without like talking to us about what they should, like how they should couch it and how they should word it. So now I'm in a position where I have a patient who would benefit from this. And because this program has been shut down, they won't let him do that. And there's no other like folks at the hospital that can do it and I can't do it. So like, I'm trying to figure out how I can best get the hospital to get this program back on board. Cause it would be better for our patients and the doctor does it. We're not like super chummy or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, he's good at this procedure and our outcomes have been good and it can save our patients additional surgery. It can save some patients from surgery at all, but I don't know how to get them to like understand this. When I emailed the, I emailed the three folks, we, we now got rid of like our, our CMO, the um, medical officer. Um, and they replaced it with three people for some reason. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Right. Like, so I, I emailed the three of them and then they emailed, they, I said, you know, I have a patient who would benefit from this. Can we get them this intervention? And I said, I, I know we closed down the stroke program. This would be helpful. I know we talked about this before, blah, blah. And then they emailed like a nurse who's in charge of the cardiovascular lab and included this lady who's on the, who does like credentialing for the medical staff. And it just like turned into this useless email chain. Like this nurse is worried that we don't have the supplies. And I'm like, okay, that's like the last of the issues. A, we still have the supplies and B, if not, like we can order them. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other ladies like sending out the neurology uh, and neurosurgery, like freaking um, privilege forms. And I'm like, lady, like I, I don't need the privilege forms. We just need to figure out how to like, get this program back on board and i'm trying to like convince these people like this will help the patient it'll help this physician that's a colleague of mine not me it'll help him Mm -hmm. and it'll help the hospital because it's money that you're losing what does the guy who does the procedure want he wants to be able to do that and he probably wants to be able to do stroke interventions as well but he's um He's pretty savvy and he got a little, you know, he got annoyed about his program getting taken away from him. So now he goes and he does locums a couple hours away, <laughs> like once a month to make up for the income he lost from it and to keep oh. doing it. So he does stroke interventions a couple hours away and gets paid locums right for it. Um. Okay, so they shut down a stroke program 
my guess is, is that there's more than just interventional radiology that's involved in running a successful stroke program, but I don't know what that might entail, like some kind of a ICU team or something like what else? Oh yeah. So we have like, we have like a, a kind of mom and pop ICU. It's, you know, we have like over 20 beds, but it's all, it's a pulmonologist running it. So, and they do a very good job, but all the medical and all the surgical cases that go to ICU go there. So it's not at all subspecialized. So um, our nurses are not like stroke trained and like, um, you know, I think they were just having trouble with some of the like door to needle time that they needed for this. And the proceduralist also is having some trouble admittedly. Um, But the stroke, those interventions can be harder than the middle meningeal artery implantation. This is just, it's like gluing a little vessel. It's not, there are risks of course, but it's not like the most, technically challenging uh, thing to do. So um, can just a point of clarification for an orthopedist here. Um, they, they basically outlawed any interventions above the neck. Yeah. Above the neck. Yeah. And then they let someone come in and do a carotid stent, which is arguably much more dangerous than some of these other procedures that they said they couldn't do anymore. So it's not that you need the stroke program back. You need you need the ability to to do catheterizations above the neck. Well, actually, what I need is just a colleague to be able to do this one procedure, just the middle meningeal artery embolization, because that's but, really the only thing that makes sense for. Like, I don't need the stroke program to come back. Yeah, and my patients don't need the stroke program to come back. So, who makes the decision then about um, you know? like what your hospital, what procedures they do, these three people that replace the CMO? Well, I think it's those three people, our CFO and our CEO. I don't know how much the CEO chimes in. And I know he's, you know, obviously privy to all of it, but. So it's the CEO and the CFO and who else? <laughs> and then we have the, the three, well, the three CMOs. <laughs> and yeah. then the three-headed monster of the CMOs. Are they doctors? Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Yes. There it's like emergency room, a cardiac surgeon, and uh I think an OB guy. Okay. So I wonder if there would be more traction with sort of excitement around a new program rather than trying to get back something that was lost. For example, is there something that you and this guy who actually does the procedure, because you're, I'm guessing you're a neurosurgeon. Otherwise I don't know why we would be yeah. talking about stuff above the neck, but yeah. um, like, Hey, we c- can, we would love to start a program for these patients and these, and here we go. We have a chat, but I don't know why I can't bring up the chat. Let me try. Oh, that was chat was just me. I just said I didn't need coaching, but I oh. <laughs> that was your group. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dr. Barbie saying numbers matter. That's all the hospital cares about. And I agree. And that's what I was getting to. Instead of like, yeah. they, they shut something down for some reason unknown to us at the moment, but probably has to do with money, I imagine, or risk of some kind. But yeah, I think it was risk. Yeah. If there is something that your colleague can do safely that is not going to pose risk, that could be a revenue generator, then maybe packaging it up in 
terms of a new program that would be able to serve such and such patients, patients with a mm-hmm. middle meningeal, um, what, like aneurysm or something? Oh, it's, they have a, it's for chronic subdurals. Okay. Um, and then I imagine there's other things he can do quite well also, right? Because he's on a stroke team somewhere else. Yeah. Well, he's, um, as a proceduralist, he's like, he's okay. He's a very good neurologist. So he comes, he does a lot of like regular neurology stuff. And Oh, know, he's an he's, interventional, so he's an interventional neurologist. Yes. Oh gosh. Yep, yep. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I did not know that was a thing. Okay. But what would something like that be called? Something really uh like powerful. What would something like that be called? Like um uh well, I don't know. It'd be facetious, they'd be like grandma's head bumps program. <laughs> like you know, is it I don't know, like a mix of dural center of excellence or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um because you're pr- you're it's a okay, subdural. I mean, it's like geriatric neurosurgery, <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah. Oh dude. I've been taking care of so many geriatric fractures and this is a thing like yeah. this is a fucking thing. And, um, I'm just excited to learn so much about, uh, the, well, you know, in orthopedics, it's hip fractures, it's hip fractures mm-hmm. and wrist fractures and stuff, but these patients are in terrible shape and it is yeah. such a huge, um, cost. So what does, what does it look like and what kind of cost is there to the system when somebody has a chronic subdural? Right. So the first, yeah. And then what does it look like if they get this thing embolized? Right. And what's the difference Mm -hmm. there? And because something like a geriatric, um, you know, subdural care for the elderly or something like that, something that sounds really inviting and that could be marketed, could be packaged up maybe and presented in a way that would be enticing, especially if you had some numbers behind it. How do you get these numbers? I tried to look up the reimbursement for the middle meningeal artery embolization and I couldn't find it. Um, I don't even know how to like go about getting that data. I mean, that might be even something that you could rope your, the, the team into to create stakes for them. Like you have the clinical knowledge and the medical knowledge, and especially if you guys could even meet, it's like getting people to have stakes in a situation is really, really important because once they understand how it's going to benefit them, Mm -hmm. i.e. the stakes, then they know. And so it's like, okay, I have this idea guys. And I, I look at these elderly people and they have chronic subdurals and you could probably get like the incidence and prevalence of that, I imagine. But and mm-hmm, like, yeah. look at the care that's required for people with chronic subdurals. And, and it involves this. They come to the hospital X amount of times. And this is what I'm seeing. Is this what you're seeing? And what would something like that cost the hospital? Right? Like you can ask them, what would something like that cost when they come to the ER 10 times and they get 10 CTs and they get... um whatever else. I'm, I'm just spitballing here. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, yeah. what would be the difference if they came in and it was identified 
and they got their embolization and they never had to come back again. But does the hospital, and this is me still learning how hospitals make their money, but Mm -hmm. does that help the hospital make money or does that actually, if the patients are doing well, is this one situation where the hospital's interest and the patient's interests are actually opposed? It might be. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because that's the one thing I'm thinking is like, you know, the scientific evidence is very good that you should consider this for patients with chronic subdurals either before or after surgery or in place of surgery for some patients. Yeah. Um, and like, and I think it's a numbers game, as um, Dr. Barbie was saying. Yeah. She's saying, get the CPT code from the neurologist and Medicare publishes the reimbursements for the hospital slash doctor. Mm-hmm. Because there could be a differential too if you were at subdural care for the elderly um, center of excellence, then mm-hmm. then people would you know be attracted to come there because yeah you're right like they'll they bill for every CT and every ER visit and whatever else has to happen with these patients. And so I'm not sure what that would look like. Would it actually benefit them for the, for these poor old people to just be bleeding into their brains all the time? Probably. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I think, I don't know if they get, if I have to do another operation, I don't know if they make or lose money because the real problem is that 20% of the chronic subdurals will recur and be symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And then you either have to reoperate or do the MMA embolization. And so at that point you have to, I don't know if the hospital loses money if we reoperate or if they get money from that second surgery. Cause it's not like a DVT or something where they get dinged for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I that's the other I'm currency, gonna... the revenue is one currency. The other currency is like people that, you know, are trying to get on the U S news and world report, you know, to be, to be mm-hmm. known as a center for X, Y, or Z. And I think yeah. another thing that gets people all jazzed is if you do like a QI project, mm-hmm. Hey guys, I have this idea for a QI project and I suspect we can really improve outcomes for blah, blah, blah. Cause they speak the language of outcomes, even if it's not the revenue. Um, Mm -hmm. Nurses love that shit. Nurses love that shit. So if you have Mm -hmm. anybody who can maybe get stakes on that side of things too, um, you know, and of course none of this is going to happen fast. So probably won't help your patient in question, but patients moving forward, and, you mm-hmm. know, it's interesting. It's like if it's a, in the form of a QI project, I wonder if your hospital would be willing to authorize um, the procedure in service to getting data. Yeah. Yeah, that might be because a good it, idea. It does sound like QI. It does sound like quality will be improved if patients are not lingering around. And the other thing that I wonder about, which is what I wonder about for fractures is, these old people, like some of them, very few, you fix their hip and they're out of the hospital in two days. They go off to a sniff to get their rehab or rehab or whatever. But there are many of them that linger in the hospital for days and days and they get pneumonia and they get bed sores and they get um, UTIs and then they get delirium Mm -hmm. and they get all this shit and that stuff takes up beds. And so, uh, like how do it's complex. So how could all of these factors be folded together, which maybe a QI project would be the easiest thing. So you could track all the data mm-hmm. from every, 
all of it. Um, I'm getting really fired up and excited about this. For <laughs> no, that's good. Um, I mean, I really, I, I really like told him, I was like, guys, I, I came here because I like that we were focused on patient care in this small community hospital. And, mm-hmm. you know, like we've t- taken away something that's really helpful. And I, I said to him, it'd be a win. I said, win, win, win. It'll be a win for the patient, a win for the, for my colleague and a win for the hospital if we can do these procedures. So Absolutely. And so how to present that to them in a way that's a language that they speak and in their currency or their stakes, I think is yeah. what you need to do. Yeah. I mean, I, get, I think I have to emphasize that it will lower the readmission rate and improve patient satisfaction. Exactly. Because I don't think they care if grandma's walking around with blood in her head. They don't. So... Yeah. Let's just make a list right now for you. Patient satisfaction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Those scores matter to these people. Yes. Um, hospital acquired issues like pneumonia. Because yeah. sometimes they get admitted, right? With these subdurals or whatever, if they're like. Yeah. Yeah. They're usually admitted. So like UTIs. Um, yeah. Pneumonia. Scores, pneumonia. Yep. And then length of stay and let's see. And then in terms of the money, we're losing the money for the procedure. Right. Money. So the money concerns are the procedure, uh, surgery, length of stay, um, radiation, radiology, I'm sure has a charge. And then- Probably there's some equipment. Um, yeah, the cat lab. Mm-hmm. So there's a like the team. Yes. Um, okay, patient satisfaction, hospital issues, like a hospital acquired complications. And then the money piece. Um, what else is there that could be their currency, their language, being a center of excellence of something? Yeah. And if not a formal center of excellence, at least like locally known for it. Yeah. Um, something like subdural care. Yeah. Yeah. The elderly or geriatric subdural care. Yeah, definitely. And one of my, well, one of my patients wasn't even geriatric, but he had a, really bad coagulopathy from liver failure. And I convinced the neurologist to do this. And um, and I sent the patient home with TXA for like a month and his subdurals went away after. And I mean, they were, I was about to reoperate on him. They were like, I did surgery. They were really big. He got better. And then they came back. We did the MMA embo and he got like, I can give them that, that as like a case study to show yes, them. That's exactly what I was going to say. Case studies, like some examples. And I think if you yeah. put this together, in a way mm-hmm. that says, Hey, like we can either, we can either be a center of excellence or we can do a QI project to de- determine if my hypothesis is correct or not, because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously your hypothesis is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wrote all that down so I can type it up and stick it in um, the room one thread on Facebook. If you didn't write it down, I wrote it down. I did write it down. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that could be really good. Like I went into this little hospital, you know, I've been taking care of kids for eight years and I took care of adults for many years before that. So it wasn't like completely foreign to me, but, Mm -hmm. um, 
in children, we're, we're always worried about vitamin D in kids because we're, that's the time of life when you build your bone mineral density. And mm-hmm. now I'm taking care of these adults or elderly people. And in this particular community, probably everywhere, but in this community, people's vitamin Ds are like in the single digits. Oh, geez. And I noticed they weren't checking. And I kept telling the hospitalist, I'm like, can we please make sure this patient gets vitamin D supplementation? And finally, one of them asked me, he's like, are vitamin Ds really like that bad that we need to be supplementing everybody? And I'm like, bro, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> just check them. And I provided him with some, some studies. Um, mm-hmm. And it just happens to be stuff he doesn't read, right? They're not, they're reading the New England Journal of Medicine. He's not reading stuff about orthopedics. And and I provided him with these studies and lo and behold, now everybody's getting their vitamin D checked and everybody's getting supplemented. And that's, I've been there for, I've, I've worked there for 14 days. (laughs) Wow. Two, two, one week. But that's what I'm saying. Like, you got to just like speak their language. Yeah. And that's a small example because you're up against like administrators here, but my, I, I think you can do it. It's long. If you just get on their, like understanding what's a win for them and presenting it in that way. I think the other thing too, is I can tell them that, you know, if we don't have this available here, when the patients come in as outpatients, I'm stuck sending them somewhere else and I'd rather keep them here. Right. And you want more people to come. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise I have to send them like either down the road to a hospital with some hostile colleagues or um, about 40 minutes away to a hospital that's a little better. But I mean, still like, do you really want to have to go 40 minutes away? Probably not. Yeah. And in your particular population, like, do you have, like, what is the prevalence of this in your population? I'll have to look it up. I've, I think in the past year, I single-handedly have handled three of these that had to go to the OR and several that didn't have to go to the OR. Mm-hmm. And then my next question is, is if if this is kind of like a pilot with this particular issue, are there any other things above the neck that you guys are, like short of a stroke program, that you guys would be capable of then taking care of um, endovascularly? Yeah, there's a couple things, definitely. Like the same neurologist will embolize tumors for us before we go to the OR. And he does yeah. a good job with that. He just oh. kind of is not super facile with the strokes. That's all. So maybe it's a good thing that he, that you don't have a stroke program now, but maybe it would be a good thing if that whatever the new thing is you're building has the capacity to handle other things above the neck because it sounds like with the language that they made now he wouldn't even be able to go and embolize a tumor for you which would make your surgery quite dangerous yeah, yeah. and uh, it's silly too because I mean, those those are pretty straightforward things that we you know like took away from our hospital yeah oh there's my dog so okay good well thank nice. you for bringing this i think it's fun to kind of brainstorm like this because at the end of the day all of us are looking to engage in our lives with more skill and the ability to influence the people around us, not to be manipulative, but so that we can make the world a better place. 
And you described a situation in which you tried to talk to people and it was like the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And there's like a Hydra that's now the CMO and all these yes. other people involved. And it's kind of like a mess. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean though, that we don't then regroup and try to figure out a way to pursue the thing that we know will be better for everybody. So I'm really happy that you brought this to us tonight because we all face these things. Sorry about the barking dogs, you guys. We Mm -hmm. all face stuff like this, whether it's in our personal lives or in our professional lives, where just kind of like stopping and thinking about, okay, how can I show up in a more, with a more powerful stance to influence these people around me? And the way you do it is by understanding what is a win for the other person or people and getting on their playing their game in their language, understanding what is their currency and making things inviting to your idea instead of repellent. And Mm -hmm. often we aren't really taught how to do that. And so many of us, not you scalpel wielder, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying many of us, the way we, go about things can be kind of repellent with the way we, and it's going to be the same idea, but it's just the way it's packaged and kind of delivered. Yeah. So I think you can do it in an inviting way. Awesome. Any other questions on that? Or does that seem like a satisfying place to stop? Well, that's pretty good. I think we're in good shape there. Good. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. We have um, six more minutes. We can... Um, do a lightning round. We can do a lightning round or have a chat or whatever you guys want to do. Um, Sunflower says, you found a unicorn place. I did. This place is crazy awesome. So take heart. If you really hate what you're doing, keep in mind there are unicorn places out there. I don't know how I found it. I just got lucky, um, persistent, maybe didn't settle, not settling is important. I think so. Um, okay. Okay. So, oh, oh my gosh, we got to change your name, my friend. So I don't want to, um, compromise your, um, There we go. I just changed your name really quickly. Wielding influence with spouse as a quick topic. Okay, sure. Now, would you like to come on and talk about it? Or would you like to me to just talk about it? Because I try to do this in my own home. It takes some effort, let me tell you. Um, again, or um, Rainbow, is there a specific thing that you want to work on? influencing you can type it into the chat or raise your hand I do this with my husband he was kind of in a sort of dark place for a very long time and the way in which I was coming at our situation wasn't helping it was hurting I was being passive-aggressive So uh, when you have somebody who stays at home and you have the other person who goes out and works, there is a silent contract 
that the person who stays at home is going to take care of shit at home because the person who goes out and works is bringing the money. And that's not ever discussed, right? Like we don't talk about it usually. And it's all just a silent contract. So that's what was going on. And for 10 years, I was just pissed all the time that there was laundry to do and dishes to do and groceries to buy and dinner to cook and all this other like second shift stuff that we do. Meanwhile, my husband is like circling deeper and deeper and deeper into his own little kind of dark place because he was not bringing money in and he felt like he should be. And he felt like sort of demoralized and I think emasculated in a way. Um, anyway, in January of this year, I basically said, listen, I think that this is what's going on here. And I just laid all of this, like exactly like I'm describing to you guys, I laid it out there for him. And I said, I think that this situation is demoralizing and emasculating for you. What do you think? And he's like, yes, it is. And I said, okay, well then guess what? Like, you don't have to do anything in the house because if I don't have to do anything I don't want to do, then you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And we just figure out a different plan for things. So I basically got myself on his, I call it storyline, to understand what it is, what is this path he's trying to walk? What's the story he's living in right now? And that just happens to be what works for us, right? Like he then could resign from the role of kind of a stay-at-home dad. And he started a business. He started a a woodworking business that's really gaining some traction. And he's getting super creative with this um, woodworking that he does. And it's just been delightful to see him kind of step into a different role because that's what he wants to be doing. So I just named the problem, which was... He didn't really want to be doing the household things. And if I don't want to be doing the household things and he doesn't want to be doing the household things, then we just have to figure out somebody who we can pay to do it. This is a very simple solution. As it turns out, there's a lot of things I actually enjoy. Like I really love cooking. I love it. So I want to do that. There's other things I don't want to do. So I farm that stuff out. And same with him. There are things he loves to do. He loves doing our yard. He loves it. So every time I ask him if he wants to farm it out, he says no, because he really wants to do it. So we're all just contributing in a way that allows us to be doing only what we want and not doing what we don't want. But the way I influenced him was by getting on his storyline and sort of seeing the whole situation from his perspective and saying, listen, I think this is demoralizing and emasculating. What do you think? And he's like, yes. He's like, I feel seen. And I know my husband. I'm like, you're the kind of guy, he's like a Braveheart kind of guy. He's like a man's man. He's he's just a manly dude. And he, I said, you're going to die on the vine if you're not out there doing manly things. And guess what? He's like woodworking. He works with power tools and big equipment and big giant projects and pieces of wood. And that's just so fulfilling to him. So that's one example. I mean, next time, maybe I'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks. We can talk about other examples and it might be kind of a fun idea if people have like specific things 
that they're working on in their own uh, relationships or whether it's personal or professional, where we can take a, a specific example and kind of analyze it and try to understand how you can get influence in that situation in an effective way. How does that sound? I hope good. Okay. It's 630. I'm going to go pick up my daughter from her practice. You guys have an awesome evening. Bye-bye.